0: friends. Good morning. I hope you guys are well. Glad you can make it. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 7. We'll continue our journey through the letter from Paul to the Corinthians. A uh, couple of uh, just family business announcements. Um, <clears throat> one of we have over the years uh, have tried very hard to make our church as kid-friendly as possible. And uh, we've not regulated running and that kind of stuff uh, because there used to be 20 of us. Uh, But now there's a couple hundred. And so um, the kids are getting a little rambunctious. And I say that watching my kid run this morning to the kids' ministry. But we're going to ask that if parents can start to control the running. Uh, People have gotten knocked into. Uh, Walls are getting pounded. Uh, That kind of stuff. So uh, we definitely want kids to have fun. We're not trying to put a kibosh on the fun. Uh, But if they could not run into people and take them out, that would be great. And uh, and stay off the chairs. So, um, yeah, hopefully that's not too angry or accusatory. But we can keep an eye on that. And no WrestleManias. (laughs) I realize that there's a... I know, I know. I, too, was young once. But uh, <clears throat> now I am not. So, uh, Secondly, uh, I just want to put a plug in for uh, the family camp. Uh, we, last year we did it. We, we teamed up with uh, Cowboy Chapel Longview. Uh, this, this year we're not doing that. Um, <clears throat> I understand that not everybody likes camping, and I'm not trying to make this everybody's gig. I'm just trying to say I think it's one of the, uh, the better times that we have. We've had it one year. And the reason is, and, and you guys know me that have been coming here, I think uh, sometimes fellowship gets kind of treated as this, like, yeah, whatever. It's just, it's just fellowship. It's just, yeah, it's not a big deal. Um, but fellowship is actually kind of the conduit, I think. It's, a, it's the arena where all the other things happen, getting into the Word, worshiping together, all these things. And so uh, we intention, intentionally do very little planned events, Uh, at the camping, so it's not like, I don't know what your vacations are like. I'm a big fan of staycations, and so when we do camp, we do nothing. Um, I I set a chair out, and I sit in it, and then I go eat, and then I sit in my chair again, and then inevitably, Tam says, you want to take a walk, and I sit in my chair. (laughs) I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's a great time. We hang out. People usually just go around to, from tent to trailer, tent to trailer, and just fellowship and have a good time. And uh, so if you're able to make that, uh, I'd encourage you to do it. It's, it's, uh, it's encouraging, I guess how I'd say it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So remember, Paul is now writing to this, this church in Corinth. They have a lot of problems. We've, over the past couple weeks, have been covering some of the most difficult ones. Uh, We've been talking about, and we looked at uh, the effects of of sex before marriage um, and what it does to the body uh, in in form of uh, oxytocin and just different things like that, and there's a reason why Paul says, hey, we should steer clear of sex before marriage. It's not just this arbitrary thing. Then we covered sex in marriage, how a marital sexual relationship is supposed to work. And, uh, and how a husband and a wife can, can um, interact appropriately in that way. And then uh, this last week, or I should say this week, we're going to be shifting gears a little bit away from... Other, I should say last week we talked about divorce. This week we're shifting gears and we're now going to be talking about uh, uh, essentially how we live our lives now in light of eternity. That's what he's kind of going on to, so all the other stuff definitely fell into that. When we talked about divorce and and, and uh, fornication and adultery, all that kind of stuff, but now he's going to talk about just whatever state that we're in in our life, how we can walk in that state or be here in life, but be thinking of eternity. And this is if you've been around church for more than like five minutes, you've probably heard someone say uh, something to the effect of like. You should walk in in accordance or walk in the knowledge of eternity. And so that's a very Christian thing to say, but what does that mean? So uh, the brief Clifton's version is this. God lives in eternity, right? And we live in time. So God created time when he created the world, but he lives eternally outside of time. So everything we do, we think in in a linear way, meaning in a line. Everything happens in a line. uh, Time works in a line, and that's how we think. So when we're walking in our life, and when we're dealing with things in our life, it can seem very difficult to see beyond the day, right? We're told uh, that God esteems one day, or He esteems a thousand years like one day. Meaning because He's eternal and He's outside of time, it, the, the time has no basis for Him. So a thousand years can be as one day. It's kind of like when you're on a road trip and you fall asleep. Right, And you wake up, and like six hours later, you're like, oh, it's like the biggest blessing in the world, right? Because you're like, we're here. It only took like five minutes, and the whole rest of the car is like, oh, you know, we finally made it. Kind of that time warp type of thing. So the Lord looks at time, and a thousand years is like one day to him. But for us, in time, oftentimes one day is like a thousand years, right? Especially when you're going through something really hard. When you're sitting there waiting for it to pass and how are you going to get to the trial and when will this bill get paid, when will this uh, uh, physical difficulty get handled, when will this emotional difficulty be done, when will this, you know, all the different things we can go through and then time can drag on. And sometimes even the thought of another day can be just devastating to us. And so when we talk about living according or living uh, considering eternity, the idea is that we live remembering that in the grand scheme of God's plan and His purpose, that even though a day can seem so long, that these 80, 90 years or less that we're on the planet is actually a very short time. And so how we can begin to, as Christians, in, in the midst of all of our joys and dilemmas, all of our suffering and elation, how we can manage uh, emotionally and spiritually to consider walking or to, to continue walking in light of what God is doing and what will last eternally. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning, what Paul is going to talk about. Uh, it may be the examples he gives are uh, maybe a little more practical for uh, first century Rome, uh, but what we'll be able to look at it for ourselves. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Nevertheless, remember, that's just a conjoining word. He's just, because of what he's just talked about with uh, different sexual relationships and then divorce. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is, excuse me, is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation in which God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can get your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed, man, freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is a general idea that Paul is expressing and is right from the beginning where he says there in verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. And you can see he gives two examples of that. And we'll talk about the examples in a second. One's a spiritual example regarding circumcision, which obviously is, uh, or maybe not obviously, forgive me for that, has, is, is, has to do with Judaism, has to do with religion, right? A past religion. And now, and the second example he gives is a physical position that a person might find themselves in the world. So when he says that we ought to act like believers, and the exact wording here is from the, whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. I want to work backwards in this verse. Because what does it mean the situation that God has assigned to them or that God has called them? And there's, there's some weird uh, doctrine out there. Uh, that kind of springs around sovereignty, right? So sovereignty is the idea of someone who has absolute control. So, for example, we would say that in, in, on this continent where we look on the map and we see the lines of the United States, that that is the sovereignty of the United States, right? So the United States government uh, controls what happens inside those borders. So when someone says that God is sovereign, which we would agree with, the Bible lays that out, although the word sovereignty is only used a couple times in the Bible— uh, we would say that God can sovereignly control the world, right? That he's able to work and to do whatever he wants. But where we, we don't want to get crazy is we don't want to assign sovereignty to all of our life. And this is what I mean. In Genesis, it's interesting, part of Adam's introduction to the fact that it was not good for him to be alone was that God brings all the animals. You're familiar with this? This has probably been in every Sunday school ever, Right? God brings all the animals in front of Adam. And in the, 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 the uh, scripture there, it says this. And, he, and he, 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 he did it so that he might see what he would name them. right? So God sovereignly causes the animals to pass by Adam. And in his sovereignty, he allows Adam to name them. Does that make sense? So God sovereignly chose to allow Adam free will. If we try to say that God actually sovereignly made Adam choose those names, you have a very perverted situation, don't you? Because then you have a God whose the commentary that Moses gives us, through the Holy Spirit is, he did it so that he could see what Adam would name them, but he actually forced Adam to name them what he wanted them to be named, and then sat and watched. If you did that to your children, or you saw somebody doing that to your children, you think, this is a healthy pattern here. This is really great. I would like to see what well, you name our dog. You'll name it Sparky. Now, what do you want to name it? Sparky. I knew it. We're, so, we're in agreement. <laughs> right? So we know that God is sovereignly over the earth. But yet we're also told on the earth that Satan is the god of this world. John says that the whole world lies in the arms of the wicked one. Ephesians 2 says that, the, that Satan is the pneuma, the spirit, that is at work in the sons of disobedience. When Satan offered Jesus in his temptation all the nations, he said, I will give you all the nations to worship you. Jesus' retort wasn't, you can't do that, you don't own them. His retort was that, that it's only the, we only worship the Lord our God, right? So the, the point is this. God is sovereign, and He can do whatever He likes, but He has chosen sovereignly to allow free will in this world. Okay, So when we're looking at chapter 7 here, why is this important? Because we, when he says that we should act like a believer in every situation that he has called us to or that we've been put in, we don't take every situation in our life and say, God put me here. Let me give you an example. If I go out and I decide to get crazy hammered at LBT, and I drive home and I wipe out a family, and I go to prison, I don't go, well, God called me to this situation. Right? He sovereignly placed me here. You may make the argument that God sovereignly allowed me to do that. He could have stopped me. He could have, like, you know, made my car not start or whatever. But I chose sin. I chose then to heap sin upon sin, to drive inebriated, and then it cost everybody around me. So I brought myself to my own situation. Does that make sense? So this idea. That we, we want to eliminate that we go too far with this verse. We want to eliminate, because it is in some Christian cultures, and we're not attacking anyone, it's just true, where you will meet people that love Jesus and mean well, but they'll say, well, everything that happens is God's will. And that's just not true. We thwart God's will every day. We probably did it this morning with some ill thought, some measurement, some judgment, some frustration for nothing, all these things. His, he's not willing for the wicked to perish. But guess what happens? Wicked perish every day, right? God's purpose, however, meaning building a bride for his son Jesus, building the church, however, you know the different language that's there in the Bible, it cannot be thwarted. So he will build his church as Jesus told us there in Matthew 16, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus is able to make those statements in absolute sovereignty that God will preserve his purpose. But on individual levels, you and I have a free will. So we get ourselves into situations that are not God's will at all. And God may use it for good, but that's not a reason to say, well, he sovereignly wanted me to do that. Does that make sense? And you can read testimonies of people. You know, uh, uh, if you read that book, uh, I haven't read it. Tam's read it a couple times. I saw the movie Unbroken. About a man who is becomes a, a prisoner of war in World War II is radically mistreated. A bunch of his uh, 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 fellow prisoners are slain uh, by the Japanese, and then, but that ends up leading him to Christ later in life. But to say, "Well, that was God's will for the Japanese to do that to those people, so that he could find Christ," not true. They God just used, like his, like the as, as we're told, he used something bad that was not his will, and got something good out of it. Does that make sense? It's important that we know these things. So when we look at this in, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 7, for time's sake we won't go there, but in Acts chapter, eh, we will go there. What the heck, right? I mean... <laughs> in Acts chapter 17, here's where this, this idea is really laid out well. So Paul... This is one of my favorite chapters just because it shows such of the humanity. Uh, Paul is going and, and he's talking to some philosophers and their response is, well, let's see what this babbler has to say, right? So that's, that's what they say about Paul. And Paul has, um, essentially, he's at the Areopagus and he's seen uh, a, uh, an idol or a, an altar to the unknown God. So part of the ancient world and part of uh, polytheism it was the acknowledgment Uh, of, of Roman and Greek polytheism that there may be a God that we don't know and we don't want to tick him off. And so we have an altar that we give sacrifice to this God that could be out there. It's kind of like hedging your bets, you know. There could be a God out there that we don't know. We don't want to make him angry. So we're going to make an altar to him, throw a couple bulls on there, throw some blood on there, and then that way he'll see it and know if we could, we would honor him. Does that make sense? That's what they're doing. So Paul sees that and he says, I actually want to tell you about the God that you don't know. The God that this altar is to, I want to tell you who that is. So we pick up here in verse 24, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul, talking about God and talking about sovereignty, he makes a statement. He says, the God of the universe, the one true God, he did something. He arranged the nations. So the nations came from one man, right? We're down with that. Adam brought these nations. The nations came from one man. So, but in... in the nations forming, right, and and the globe forming and where people lived and all that, whether you want to talk about uh, the Tower of Babel or, or, you know, migration or whatever. When that happened, God in sovereignty ordained something. He ordained the time and the place, and He ordained the, uh, um, oh, that's the word I'm looking for, the map lines. He ordained where those nations would be, okay? And He tells us why He would do it. He did it so that people, every human being, so he talks about nations, and then he says, every one of us would grope after him. So God positioned and, had, and positions the world, which is probably hard to kind of grapple with, that, that he's that wise and, and that all-powerful and that smart, that he positions each person in the place that they're born so that, because for that person, knowing the, the beginning from the end, would have the best chance of finding him. Does that make sense? So God has, if if there's someone who is born in Africa in a tribe, they're born in Africa in a tribe because that is their best chance of finding God. If they're born in America and they're rich, then it was good for them to be born in America and rich because that is their best way of finding God. This is really important because there's no mistakes in this. And that's what he was saying. He says he did this. He 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 chose the times and the places, the boundaries, so that each person literally would grope after him, that we would feel around and try to find him. So so when we look at chapter seven, this is the kind of idea that we're talking about. Let's flip back there. With it, Paul says, if you find yourself in a situation or you find yourself in a in a calling. He says that in a situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as the Lord has called them, that we're to act like believers in there. So there are some situations that we come into in life, whether it's where we were born or uh, if we're the one who gets in a car accident that someone else causes or we cause one that's simply by mistake, things that we didn't actively pursue, we didn't bring upon ourselves. There are things that God allows to happen in our lives, right? He assigns to us, and the application that Paul's giving right now in first century Rome is that whatever thing you end up with, whatever situation you're in, that we are called to act like believers, right? So he's kind of summing up his previous thought of fornication, uh, the sexual relationship in a marriage, and divorce, that in any of those situations, we are to act like a believer, right? Right? If we're getting a divorce, we are to act like a believer to our spouse that is either we're divorcing or they're divorcing us. If we're going through difficulty in life, we are to act like believers. In the first example that he gives, and this is important, the first example that he gives, and it's kind of a humorous example, right? it's, It's comedic. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. That seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? (laughs) If you don't know what that is, don't use Google. Ask your mom. (laughs) Right? So if a person, you cannot become uncircumcised. I mean, you, you you cannot become circumcised again, especially in first century Rome. I would imagine that today, with all the things that they do with plastic surgery, you probably could. But in first century Rome, you cannot. It is not an option. It's an impossible thing. There's a couple applications from this. Number 1, when there's there's a whole even today there, was there it was alive and well there in Rome and in all Christianity in the first century, but even today there is a whole movement of Christians that want to be Jewish. And here's the thing, let me say this first. If you if you like history and you just think Judaism is cool and you want it, and you like the allegory of the feast or whatever, hey, great. That's fine. You want to pray for Israel? The, the Psalms promote that we, sh- we ought we, we to pray for Israel uh, and, and pray that uh, not... Well, I don't want to get too far out here. We're to pray for God's will in Israel. Okay? That does not mean that we're to pray for the destruction of the Arabs because God loves Arabs. He wants them to get saved. And, and, and I personally am a dispensationalist, and from the decree of Artaxerxes forward... God is now working in the heart of the Gentile, and he has set the Jews aside. Any Jew can get saved anytime they want. But as far as the promise to conquer the land, that's gone for now. That will come back, and you have Daniel's vision. And in the last seven years, what you'll see is God begin to work in the life of Israelis again. And, and how that will come out, and eventually there will be a millennial reign where they will, the, those who have chosen Christ, will reign with Christ. So we want to be careful now. It's not smash those, every Arab out, just kill them. They're terrible. That's not what we think. God wants to save Arabs. There's great books, uh, t- Killing Christians. And it's all about all these, uh, these Arabs, Muslims and Arabs, that are getting saved. And God's giving them visions, and God's giving them dreams, and they're finding Christ in these miraculous ways. So we don't want to get too far off the beaten path. God is not against Arabs, all right? He loves them, and He wants them to be saved. I don't know how I got on that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we come back here. So, so there's, there's sects of Christians that want to become Jewish. And they think if we say Yeshua instead of Jesus, if we keep the feasts, if we get circumcised after we get saved, right? This these ideas have been going ever since the beginning. And it's this, it's a false idea that the more Jewish I can become, then the more closer I'll get to Christ. And, and this is a small side note here that Paul is making. We're not saying don't study Jewish history. We're not saying that there's no, no, no fruit in studying the law. We're not saying that at all. We're saying that Paul is saying it here, and he says in his second letter that we have to the Corinthians, don't try to become Jewish. If you weren't Jewish when you got saved, don't try to become Jewish. And if you were Jewish when you got saved, don't try to become un-Jewish as far as your descent. If you're circumcised, don't try to be not circumcised. And if you're not circumcised, don't try to be circumcised. Because, he says, he says it very clearly, because it's nothing. This is really important. He says there, um, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Nothing. Uncircumcision is Nothing. This is a really important idea for the freedom that we have in Christ. We are not called to become Jews or try to learn all about Judaism or send all our money to Israel or anything like that. We're called to be believers in whatever place God has put us. That's what we're called to do. We pray for them. We know that God has a purpose in them, but we're not. God is going to work in them. We're not trying to become them. Later on, in the second letter that he has, that he writes to Corinth, he's going to say something more interesting. He calls the law the ministry of death, which is passing away. Literally, passing away means obsolete. Paul calls the Old Covenant obsolete, meaning it's not useful anymore. The law was there. We're told in Galatians, when he writes to Galatians, he says the law was there, and it's still there, as a schoolmaster, as a tutor. And it's to tutor us, To show us Christ, why we need Christ. That's why the law is still alive and well in our hearts. Not so that we can try to follow it. Not so that we can pick and choose out of things that make us feel closer to God. Not so that we can try to any of that. It's so that we can know His heart, it shows His heart, and and it shows us our need for a Savior. So he comes back here, and he says, that's his first example, is the circumcision. Secondly, he says, after he talks about the circumcision, he says, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Now, I don't know about you and where you're at in your life, but typically when someone says following God's commands, what's the first thing you think of? The, The Ten Commandments. The Mosaic Laws, right? But he just got done saying... We don't follow those laws, right? Circumcision is nothing. Doing Levitical law is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Instead, we're to follow God's commands. So what does that mean? If we're not called to follow the Old Testament commands, if we're not followed to, to the Levitical commands, what command are we to follow? How does this work? I would throw this out. Flip over to 1 John chapter 2, if you would. In 1 John chapter 2, and just roll with me, we're going to read a little context here. It's rough, it's rough, but it's good. 1 John chapter 2, and verse 3. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Now let me throw this out, and there's a lot more that can be said about this, and I can, we can talk about it afterwards, but for time's sake, we're not going to hash it out right now. I know that Christians today if we're standing in the hallway, or someone comes to church, or we're sitting somewhere, you know, we're, uh, we're Christians, so we go to healthy places to eat, I guess. I don't know. So we, we, but there's no, I don't know. Where is that anymore? Nowhere. So we don't eat out, evidently, as Christians. But if we were to, and we saw someone, and we asked them, do you know the Lord? What are we asking? Are you saved? Right? That's actually not a biblical way to put it. And so in 1 John, one of the real keys to knowing and understanding 1 John is that knowing God and being saved, to an extent, are two different things. When John wants to talk about being saved, he talks about being in Christ. He talks about being the the fact that we've been born again. When John wants to talk about relationship with God, he talks about knowing Him. Okay. So when we read these... He says we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. So if you try to make the point that knowing him is salvation, then nobody is saved. Because every one of us at times do not obey him. Right? That can't be the application. If you sin, you're not saved. That's a a crazy application. Practicality, we know that's not true. But the, what is true is that if I say that I know God, but I don't walk with Him, I may be saved, but I don't intrinsic, it's not intrinsic, it's, I don't uh, experientially know Him. Does that make sense? In other words, if I say, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. I got saved. You may be saved. You may have the Holy Spirit in you. If you do and you're not doing what God has called you to do, the Holy Spirit is just testifying to you that you need to do what He did, what He's called you to do. But the reality is, I don't truly have a relationship with Him because I'm not obeying Him. Because that's what Jesus told us, right? If we love Him, not if we got saved, All right, love comes over time. Salvation builds love. But if we, if we love Him, we do his commandments. If we know him, we do his commandments. He doesn't say if we're saved, we do his commandments. None of us do that. We all hopefully are attempting to walk with him and we're repenting when we don't. But the reality is we break his commandments. We break what he called us to do. So John here is laying this thing out and and there's this huge litmus test. He says in verse five, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to, uh, to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had from the beginning. This old commandment is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining." Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing uh, in them to make them stumble. So John's command that he's talking about, clearly, right, from the context, is to love one another. And he says, I'm giving you a commandment. It's an old commandment. You've heard it from the beginning, but I'm giving you a new commandment. And then he states it in the in the kind of in the negative. If you don't love your brother or sister and you say you know God, then you're a liar. Now this is kind of the weapon of mass destruction of Christianity, isn't it? Because we can and I'm you know, we can have all these expressions of how much we say we love God. We can listen to worship music 24/7. We can have bumper stickers and t-shirts and donate and do all these things. But God says, if you don't love your Christian brother and sister, He doesn't say you're not saved. The idea that a Christian can hate someone, uh, you know, can't hate someone, that's ridiculous. But the notion is that if you have all this exterior stuff, that you're so good at this or I'm so good at that or whatever it might be, but you harbor hatred in your heart, meaning you despise them, you disesteem them, you don't have a care for them, He says, then you are deceived. I am deceived and I am a liar. I'm lying to myself, I'm lying to God, and I'm lying to my brethren. That's really sobering. Really sobering. But he doesn't say I'm not saved. He says, so the problem, if I'm hating people, is not that I'm not saved. The problem is I'm not getting to know God. I'm not growing in my relationship with him. Because as I grow with God, as I experience him, the more... I will begin to look at myself and others the way he does. Now, agape love, again, it's a moral love. It's a love that looks at someone regardless of what they have done. It doesn't forgive. Well, let me take that back. It doesn't appreciate and uh, endorse the negative things, the sinful things that people have done. It doesn't go that route. It doesn't applaud them. It doesn't take maybe cautions because of them. But what it does is it looks at a person regardless of what they have done and that love says, I want the best for you. That's what agape love is. So you can look at someone who has offended you or hurt you, and you can say, I, I, I forgive you for that. In Christ's name, it's a process. I'm going to forgive you for that. I'm not, maybe not going to wrap myself up with you and let you continue to do that. But I hope God does a great work in your life. And I, and I hope that you, can, that, that you will repent from this hurt, from what you've done. And God will do a great work. That's what we mean when we say love our brethren, okay? So when we look back here, and we're back in 1 Corinthians 7, when he says that we're to live like a believer in whatever situation we're in, who is he writing to? He's writing to believers in one of the most dysfunctional churches you've ever known. They're offending each other. They're suing each other. They're sleeping with each other. They're robbing each other at the Lord's Supper. They're partaking drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're misusing their spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves. All these things are going on. And so Paul is saying in every situation you find yourself, you are to act like a believer. You're to act and, and follow God's commands. Love God. Love one another. That's what we're called to. Again, and I I may harp on this too much, but to me it's one of the most fascinating historical thoughts. Remember, the church predates the Bible by hundreds of years, right? So when you look at Jesus' teachings, when you look at the commands that they're talking about, so Corinth is a very rich city, right? Incredibly rich, lots of money there. Maybe they could afford as a church the papyrus, and the ink, and maybe they had a scribe. They had at least one letter from Paul, or two letters from Paul. We know the other letters were supposed to be circulated. Maybe, maybe they got someone to copy those. We know around the 100 to 131 A.D., a kind of a, a set of scrolls began to be released that was the Aramaic, the Gospels in Aramaic, um, and that was widely used by the church in the first couple centuries. But there again, most churches, and definitely almost zero believers had a Bible, had even a scrap of a Bible. The printing press gets invented in 1439, and that Gutenberg Bible is German. So that's like, what, this in the entire world? And then that gets translated and so forth, and then the Bible really in the 1800s, I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, but realistically in the 1800s, that's where you get a Bible in every home. So you have 1,800 years of Christianity where people's contact with the Scripture was very, very limited. And so when you you read something like this, and he says, look, this is what you're called to do. You're called to act like a believer, and you're called to obey God's commands. Jesus makes it so easy, doesn't he? Because he says just in every situation that you're in, every time you have dialogue and interaction, you don't have to go to the Scripture and go, oh, God, what do I do? You just go, I need to love this person. I need, to, I need to do what's going to be the absolute best for that person, which sometimes is saying no and sometimes is saying yes. But I need to take steps. Jesus makes it so simple for us. Now, we have the scripture today. I think personally, it's just a James Aiken theory you can throw it in the trash. I think personally, when you look at the amount of distraction that kind of ramps up after the Industrial Revolution, and then with that, you look at how many people got Bibles, it's almost like we didn't don't throw me out. It's almost like we didn't need it as much until we just got so dang distracted and rich. And then all of a sudden we needed to have the Bible every day. When we were just sitting out growing corn and potatoes, just trying to survive watching our corn grow, yeah, there was wickedness in the world, but you saw like the neighbors, you probably knew 50 people your whole life other than family. Things were simpler. But now we have all these distractions. We have, you know, we have uh, the phones and the, the media on every, every corner in our pockets. It's, it's bombarded. So the, the need for the word has definitely, I would say, increased. But the basic simplicity of it has been sustainable for all of New Testament history. And it's just been that simple. Act like a believer wherever you go. Act like a believer in your marriage. Act like a believer to your kids. Act like a believer to your parents. Act like a believer to people at work. Love them. Obey the command. Love them. And be honest when you don't. Because when I find myself hating someone, the answer is not to try to make myself love them, isn't it? Have you ever tried that? I will now love you. (laughs) Right? Is that real? No, because you're like, I hate that fool. And so the answer becomes, "I I need to get to know Christ right? That's the real problem at hand. I don't actually know him. I know about him. I may show up to church. I may read. I'm all these things, but he and I have not sat down and had sweet fellowship together. We have not sat down and I've poured my heart out to him and listened for his response. I've not allowed him to work in my heart and provide for me the way he promised to. I've, I've made my own way. I've done my own things, so when we find ourselves not obeying the command, we find ourselves not acting the believer, the issue, that, that, that's just the symptom. The true issue is that I don't really know him. And that can, be, that can be a hard pill to swallow sometimes. But if we're willing to, it leads to life, right? It leads to relationship. So Paul's saying, look, whether it's religious, whatever it might be, don't try to become a Jew, don't uh, don't just try to uh, leave your Judaism behind as a, as a race, as, a, as a, uh, you know, a Jewish person. But instead, stay in what God has called you to. He's going to go on. He gives us a, sev- a second example. This would be a very um, apropos example. There were tens of millions of slaves in the Roman, uh, the Roman world, first century Rome. Uh, they enslaved darn near entire nations sometimes when they took them over. You read Roman history. So the idea that someone got saved as a slave in Rome or in the Roman Empire, very, very likely. So, in fact, we know that there were slaves who got saved that went to Corinth because later on he talks about how they're getting shamed by rich people. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. I just love the NIV on that. Don't let it trouble you. He says, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So think about this if you're a slave when you get called. I don't know, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard for me, maybe it's hard for you to kind of think out of your own context, out of your own life story. You get saved, right? Maybe you've got some, some, some uh, experience with talking to other believers. Maybe you've uh, heard the letter that, that, that Paul wrote or someone wrote to the, the Hebrew Christians. You know, you, you've gotten wisps here and there, however, you got saved, right? But you're a slave. So you don't get to go to church if you're a slave, do you? You don't get to go. I mean, your master could let you, but you don't get to go and worship on the first day of the week with the other believers, do you? You don't get to go to midweek Bible study if you want to, do you? You probably most definitely never have and never will read the Scripture, will you? Because you would have to ask your master for a very expensive favor to provide you with some sort of copy of something of the Bible. So for us, it's kind of like, oh yeah, if you're not, don't worry about it. But think about it, you're talking about an incredibly possibly isolating Christian existence, aren't you? Because you don't own yourself. You do what someone else says all the time. And yet Paul writes to him and he says, he says to them, look, if that's the position that you're in, if God has allowed that in your life, don't worry about it. It's fine to long. I wish I could be in fellowship, but there's no condemnation, right? You're not going to walk up to a slave, hopefully, and pull out Hebrews 10.25. Well, it says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is, especially as the day approaches. Just saying, you should probably run away and risk death or torture for your family because you want to be faithful to Jesus. Right? Isn't That's crazy talk. Paul says right here, he says, if you're a slave, if that's where you're called, if that's what you are when you get saved, he goes, try to get free because that's good, right? We would always say, Freedom is better than slavery. He says, but don't worry about it. You don't have to be upset about it. God's not condemning you for it. Again, especially in Jewish culture and Jewish religion, what were slaves and poor people relegated as? People that were being judged by God. Remember when Jesus is talking about how hard it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And what he says is, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to go to heaven. Do you remember what the disciples say? Who can be saved then? If a rich person can't get into heaven, then who could possibly get saved? Why? Because the cultural Jewish norm was money was a blessing from God. So if you had money, you were clearly legit with God. It was unfathomable to them that a rich person couldn't make it to heaven. And that was a norm. That was a societal Jewish norm. So if you're a slave and you get saved, and and there's a lot of Jews getting saved, right? The original church there in in Jerusalem starts as almost 100% Jews. So if you're getting saved and you're a slave, it's easy for someone else to look at you and be like, well, you're a slave because, you know, you're not really good with God. But Paul says, hey, don't worry about it. Be comforted in that. There's things that you can do as a slave. There's things that you can do in a situation that you feel like you can't get out of. That can bolster and grow a relationship with God. Whether it's slavery, physical disability, whatever it might be. There are things that you and I can walk in, in the light that we have and what we've gotten, that we're able to move forward in a relationship with God. To act like believers in every situation we're in. To be able to encourage people and to love people. And help them to the best that they can possibly have. This is, this is a tough type of teaching, because if you're like me, it's really easy to read this, acknowledge it, and then absolutely ignore it. To go, yeah, that's true. Well, I should love people. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. And then to go home and see Facebook and go, those stinking political party members, <laughs> those morons, All right? That person in my family that just sucks. Isn't it easy? This is one of those most difficult things that we have to do, and yet it's literally we have one job. We have one job, and it's to love people and to walk in a way where we say, I want the best for you. It doesn't matter if you vote for who I vote for. It doesn't matter if you interpret the Constitution the way I interpret the Constitution. What matters is that God has something great for you, and I want to help you to that end. I want to help you to find all that God has for you. I can vote my conscience, I can do all that, that's fine. But the most important thing is people getting to heaven. And we have a crazy amount of power in helping people in that direction. Through our, our testimonies, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of love in a person's life. It's incredible how we can help people. So he goes on to encourage the slaves, and he says this, you were bought, at a, or, I'm sorry, let me back up, verse 22, for the one who was a slave when he was called to faith is the Lord's freed person. Amen? He says to the slaves, he goes, you know, if that's where you're, you're a free man with the Lord. You have freedom in him. They can't control your prayers. They can't control your thoughts. They can't control your worship. They can't control any of that. All they can control is what happens with your body. That's all they can control when you're a slave. Everything else is up to you. He says, you're the Lord's freed man. And then he says, similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. Do I look at my life that way? There's an interesting kind of, I don't want to call it a dichotomy. They're not at odds with each other, but there's a dynamic at hand here. Because Jesus said, I don't call you slaves. Right? John 15. I don't call you slaves. I call you friends. And Paul says, we're Christ's slaves. So how do we look at this? What does this mean? The reality is that Christ doesn't look at us as people just to order around and destroy if we don't do what he says. Can you imagine what your Christian life would be like if that's how Jesus looked at us? If he truly looked at us as slaves? That'd be horrible. He says we're friends. Now, that's the crazy thing. Your best friend is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for our salvation, but work it out. We fear him. And not in the sense that we're terrorized by him per se, although there, there, there should be a bit of a terror of saying, wow, he is incredible. But he's the Lord of lords and he's our friend. He deserves all the respect and all the worship. right? We're not going to go get t-shirts that says, Jesus is my homeboy or something like that, because he's the Lord of lords and he's the king of kings, and we respect him. Right, But he's a friend of sinners. And it's important that, that we consider these things. Am I a slave to Christ? Am I his bond slave? When he says jump, do I say how high? When he says love, do I say okay? When he says forgive, do I say I'll try? Or do we just go, uh, yeah, he's right most of the time, but this person actually really deserves to get hated. So you don't know what they did, Jesus. No, he's, he, we're invited to this incredible world. You know, what, you know what's better than hating someone? is having the joy of loving someone. You know what's better than the bondage and the anxiety of unforgiveness? Is the freedom of forgiveness, forgiving someone. The freedom of knowing that that person will stand for better or for worse before the Lord, and yet we can pray for them, that they would repent, and whatever it might be, that they would experience all that God has for them. That's what Paul is calling us to. That's what we're looking at here. And then he goes on, verse 24, brothers and sister, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation uh, they were in when God called them. So he says, hey, you're, we are individually each responsible to God to do his will, to maintain where he put us. Now, again, he says, look, if you're a slave and you can get out, you can be free, then be that. If you have some physical limitation and it can be fixed, then be free from it. You know what I mean? Like, but don't be discouraged if you're in it. Does that make sense? So there's no, there's no glory from staying in a position that you could get out of that's negative. There's no, there's no bonus points just to make yourself suffer. But at the same time, if there's deliverance, take it. If there's not, it's okay. You're still the Lord's free man, free woman. Now he's going to switch gears again, and this is something, this is specific to Corinth, and and we know why it's specific to Corinth. It doesn't mean it doesn't have an application for us, but it's specifically to Corinth. Verse 25, now about virgins. Remember, virgins are people who have never been married and do not have sexual history. I have no command from the Lord. So there you go. This is Paul's opinion. He's going to tell us it's a trustworthy opinion, but he says this is not a command from God. He says, but I give a judgment as one who is, by the Lord's mercy, trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is, okay? So he says, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a person, a man or a woman, he's going to talk about women in a moment, I think it's good for someone to not get married. He says, it's my opinion, as a trustworthy person who loves Jesus, right, That for right now, in Corinth, because of the present distress, it would be good to stay single. And he's going to elaborate on that. He's going to say, he's going to go on to say, as you read this, I'm telling you this ahead of time so you can have some context. He's going to say, I'm not saying this to limit you. I'm saying this to spare you from difficulty. So this whole passage is about being spared from difficulty that was going on in Corinth. Does that make sense? Now we know that right now in Corinth there hasn't, there doesn't seem to, be, there's no bloodshed happening, right? Historically at this point they weren't being thrown to lions yet. You, you don't have that radical uh, Titus, and then you, know, you, you get Nero later, and Titus, and Domitian, and some of these Caesars that just absolutely go to extremes to wreck Christians, to kill them. So, but Paul, that you definitely have families forsaking you. You definitely have. What we might consider in, in, in light of what, what's coming, minor persecution. It could be, this could also be translated uh, actually the coming distress. It, it's, it's hard to say which is which. So it may be that Paul is saying, uh, giving kind of a word of prophecy or a word of wisdom saying, there's a coming distress and because of that, I think this is wise. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is saying. So he's gonna go on and he says there, Are you pledged to a woman? Are you engaged? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not seek for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who will marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that this time is short. So again, back to this idea of time being short and to consider eternity. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters is that this time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as, they, as though they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if engrossed in them, for this world is its pre, in its present form is passing away. So now he makes some interesting statements. What do these mean? He says, if you're married, walk like you're not married. Now, is he saying if you're married, because Jesus will come soon, kick your spouse to the curb. No, he is not saying that. He writes in Ephesians, he writes all over the place, and in Ephesians chapter 5, we're told that husbands are to cherish their wives, and wives are to respect their husbands. We're told that that they're to love each other. All over the place, Peter, all these people talk about The fact that if you're married, you need to be engaged and working on your marriage to make it a better marriage, right? To to continue to lift up that other person and be a blessing to them, right? So he's not now saying, well, because Jesus could be coming soon, ah, whatever, kick him to the curb. He's just saying that we're living in light of eternity. So if you're married, you need to live in light of eternity. Say, well, how does that work in a marriage? They are about to start getting chucked to lions, literally, it was very normal that they would be, Christians would be rounded up. They would be taken to Rome itself in Italy, and they'd be brought to the Colosseum, and they'd be given a sword and a shield, and it didn't matter if they were children, and it didn't matter if they were men. And then, and then lions would be sent out. And a lot of times, the Christians would kill the lions with their sword and their shield. And then a gladiator would come out, and most of the time, from the, the recordings that we have, the history we have, the Christians would throw their shield on the ground, and they would stand there, And pray while the gladiator ran him through. And so you saw tons of children die this way. You saw tons of women die this way and men die this way. And so when he's calling them, he says, look, there's a present distress or there's a coming distress. And there's a radical difficulty that's coming. And he says, I want to spare you from that. And so it's my opinion that to be spared from that, that you don't get remarried or you don't get married. But he says, says, I'm not trying to limit you, right? You have many troubles that you're going, to, you're going to face. So he says, if you have a wife, live as if you have none. And otherwise, continue to consider eternity. When you're faced with, in, in Rome, they literally had, an, it was real centralized. It was kind of on the outskirts of Rome, but mostly very centralized. They actually had checkpoints because they knew that Christians would not burn incense to Caesar. And so they'd have a couple of guards, and they were actually, they have them. You can look them up online. They found a couple of these cards, thousands of years old, 2,000 years old, these cards. And they were issued to people that said that you had burnt incense to Caesar. And so they would set up a checkpoint, and you'd be walking through the market, and the guards would be like, let me see your, let me see your certification. Let me see your, your document that you've burnt to Caesar. And if you couldn't produce one, guess where you went? You died. Or you had the opportunity to burn it right there in a little brazier and say, Caesar is Lord. I don't know. It wouldn't be, I don't know, it's Hebrew, but Caesar is the Lord is what you'd have to say. And if you refused to do it, you were executed. You were executed in that town if you were lucky. Otherwise, you went to Rome and you fought gladiators or you were torn to pieces. So this is very real stuff that's happening, very difficult things that were happening. There were actually even guards that would, if you paid them, they would just issue you one. So you kinda of had to ask yourself, do you want to bribe a guard to get a piece of paper that says you did burn incense? Do you want to burn incense or do you want to die? You know? And so that's what many of these Christians were faced with, and they chose the death. They chose they chose to, to stand for Christ. So that's, that's all he's talking about. But he goes on and he expands on the idea. gives us a more rounded uh, concept where he says, hey, if you're mourning, he says, live as if you're not mourning. He's not saying don't deal with grief and carry your trauma with you. He's just saying realize that eternity is coming. The mourning is temporary. The difficulty is temporary. He says, are you happy He says, live as if you're not happy. In other words, he's not saying you should be miserable. He's saying live in the the concept that present happiness is fine, but there's something much greater coming. Don't be content with this world. Don't be happy with this world. Don't settle for this world. I love this one. It's so practical. He says, did you just buy something? Then live as if you didn't buy it. And the point he's making, he doesn't say don't buy things, right? He didn't say make sure you you stop buying anything. Put Bezos out of business. He's not saying that. What he says is if you do have something, then just act like you don't. In, in this sense, we're also told by Paul that he's provided everything for, our, for richness and for our enjoyment, right? That, we, that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. You know, if you're a jet ski person or a sewing machine person or a whatever, everything in between, that's fine. He's provided those things. There's, there's recreation or recreation in hobbies in these things. He he doesn't say don't buy stuff. What he says is if you do buy something, just live your life as if you don't own it. That it doesn't own you, right? It's fine to own stuff. It's not fine when stuff owns you, when your thoughts are consumed with with the stuff. Yeah, you want to have a jet ski? You want to go to the the, the, the lake or do your thing? Do your thing. God bless you in that. There's nothing wrong with that. Just make sure that it doesn't own you, that, that you're not... Uh, a slave to it. It doesn't demand from you, but you only demand from it. And then lastly, he goes on and he says, um, if you use things of the world as if engrossed in them. And he's just saying, do you have a job? <laughs> right? Do you have a job? Do you, do you, you know? He uses the court system at times. Do we use the court system? Do we, you know, different things we might have access to? Do we get help from the government for our insurance or whatever? He says that's fine. You, you know, whatever. Go ahead and use that, but make sure that you're. It's a light touch. Use the things of this world, but don't let them use you. That's all he's saying. Have a light touch on it. So again, because he's saying, I don't want you to have trouble. If we have trouble we, because these things are going away, all those things are going away from them, seemingly many of our freedoms are going away too, possibly. So we want to we vote our conscience. That's all just fine. But you know what? We live as if we have none because our life is not based on our freedoms in this world. If we end up being the slaves of the United States, we're still the, Lord free, the Lord's free people, right? Right? If the things get bad or ways that we don't like, or whatever it might be, we're still the Lord's free people. Right? It's important that we, that we move forward that way. Verse 32, he says, Would you like to be free from concern? An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. I've completely licked that. I don't worry about that anymore. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. It's just a very simple truth. It's not a condemnation. He says, I'm not trying to restrict you. He says a married person has other cares besides Jesus, right? You know, if you're a, a single-income family and, you know, you're the, the breadwinner, guess what? You're worried about putting food on the table, aren't you? There's nothing wrong with that. That's not a bad worry. You don't look at that and go, oh, you shouldn't care about that. You should just let people starve in your house, right? No, it, you, see, you take certain responsibility. You say, oh, I'm going to get this job or I'm going to work these hours. I'm going to do this thing because I have a calling to take care of my own, right? So he's just just making the point that once you get married, there's a whole set of extracurricular cares that come with that marriage. And he's saying because of the present distress, let's not lose sight of that, because of the present distress or what's coming and what did come to Corinth and all over the Roman Empire is radical destruction to human bodies that were Christians. So he's saying, hey, I think it might be better if you don't go down that road. That's all he's saying. So then we go, why are you being so emphatic? Because I've heard, I've, I don't know if you have, but I've seen and heard this passage taught so many times, and it's, it's, it's kind of like married people are secondhand citizens in the kingdom, where it's like if you were really hardcore for Jesus, you would just roll the celibate life. And if you're not, well, then you get married and you kind of go second place, because we understand you're weak. And that's not what Paul is saying. He's just saying there's, a, there's something coming to Corinth in 56 A.D., And I would like you to avoid that, if you want to. That's all he's saying. He goes on, and we're out of time. And I will encourage you to read this on your own, because it's such a small section. And honestly, it has not much to do with us. My daughters are pretty young, but I don't know anybody who's ever, you know, uh, had to pay a a bride uh, price. And I don't know any dads who have accepted any cattle recently. Uh, And so, basically, the last section, if you want to research it for yourself... Uh, is about, if you're, and and it's debated, and that's another reason I don't want to jump into it. Um, The NIV renders it with the subject always being the virgin, and other places, uh, like the New King James, they render it with the subject being uh, the the dad. And so the the argument is, is the passage, this last passage, talking about a dad giving away his daughter from marriage, which was, that's pretty much the only way it was done in that time, or is it a passage about a person who is engaged? What's the passage about? One is that he, Paul is saying if a dad decides not to give his daughter away in marriage because he fears for the coming distress, then that's fine. You haven't sinned against her. The other idea of what it's saying is if you're engaged and you decide to break that engagement because you want to be solo for the Lord, he says, that's fine. But if you do get married or you do give your daughter away, whichever one it actually means because nobody knows... He says, that's fine too. So either way you slice it, if you're a dad giving away your daughter, you're golden either way. If you're engaged and you want to go through with it or end it, Paul says you haven't sinned either way. So I didn't really want to make a whole Sunday out of that. I'm probably assuming you're thankful I didn't either. And uh, we'll pray. Because God has great things for us, right? We get to go out there tomorrow, wherever we've been called and whatever we've been assigned to, or we assigned ourselves, (laughs) and be believers. And tell people that God loves them. That Christ died and shed his blood for their forgiveness. That they don't want to go to hell. They don't want to be absent from God for eternity. They want to be with him. And we get to tell people that even believers are discouraged. We get to even tell ourselves that I don't have to be discouraged. This world is passing away in its present form. It will not continue to consist. That I'm going to be okay. My soul will be okay. And that I can, I can love and help people around me. And that every day, when you get up tomorrow, this is, this, I don't know, maybe, I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but it, it trips me out every time I think about it. When every one of us gets up tomorrow, we will most likely see people at some point. And when we see those people, we will literally, with our words and actions, be either ushering them to a better place or a worse place. That every word Every conversation, every hug or lack of hug helps people or hinders them. It's a pretty wild reality of of how eternal our words are. And the fact that tomorrow we can get up and actually build what God is building by the empowerment of the spirit and that we can help people to eternal joy today and tomorrow. It's an amazing thing we're involved in. The kingdom of God is a mighty thing. And the fact that he took slackers like us and saved us and said, now I'm going to bless you to bless others, is just humbling. And it's a, it's a great thing God is doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for its applicability to our lives. Lord, thank you that uh, by your Holy Spirit, we, we, we're encouraged to, to walk with you, to love the brethren, Lord, to be free to obey your commands. Lord, we thank you that no matter where we find ourselves, if we're still breathing, that you're still working. And so we appreciate that about you. Thank you for never giving up on us, never forsaking us, never rewarding us what we deserve. Thank you for that, Lord. You're very kind. We pray for your presence in our lives, our hearts, in our homes. We pray for your wisdom as we talk to people. We pray for your love as we consider people. We pray, Lord, that we be those that are your slaves. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.